Welcome to the Mission Driven Mom podcast. This podcast is for moms just like you who want to learn how to glorify God through finding and embracing true principles, discovering and developing your greatest gifts, and using them to serve your family and community. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Audrey Rinlisbacher, author of The Mission Driven Life and founder of The Mission Driven Mom. So grateful for all of those of you who are sharing this podcast out and letting people know about our Mission Driven Mom Mastermind Facebook group and joining us there. Thank you for liking and subscribing and putting reviews on your podcast apps that lets other people know that this is a valuable resource and they might want to tune in as well. Just a couple pieces of information for you. We have just launched the registration for our fall event, the MDM Celebration. This is where we have a whole day of learning and collaborating together. And moms who are in the MDM Academy get to receive their awards and there's a a few speeches from them as well. We feed you lunch and spend the day together. This year, our theme is Mothers of Vision. And we are going to use a lot of different tools and activities in order to gain better vision for our lives and set realistic goals, figure out how to overcome obstacles, create accountability, write truth statements, and put together a plan of action during the day that you can take home and put into practice immediately. So just a day for you to get away, spend time with incredible women, and be more intentional and get a better better, uh, vision of where you're headed personally or with your family, whatever that vision is for you right now. There's an option also to add on the recordings of this event. We have the recordings from last year's event almost done and ready to release. That was uh, because of some internal problems with getting them done quickly. But this year's recordings will be available just within a couple months of the event because we're all set up to process those now. And so you'll have the opportunity to buy last year's recordings here pretty soon from the Mothers of Discernment event in 2019. But if you want to add this year's recordings, there's a nominal fee to do that. And then if you want to add on two months of mentoring with me after the event, you're welcome to sign up for that as well. I'd love to spend time with you. We're going to we're going to meet twice a month, be in a Facebook group and you'll have email access to me to fine tune that plan and make sure it gets really implemented solidly into your life. 30% off until the end of May for this early bird special that we have going on right now. So we would love to see you. That's going to be September 12th in Provo, Utah. We're going to be at the historic Provo Library. And I'm really excited. We were there last year. It's a beautiful venue. We'll be uh, taking up the entire upstairs this year as we'll be a larger group. And uh, it's going to be an incredible day. I really hope you can join us. If you go to themissiondrivenmom.com and click on MDM Celebration, you can see a video there of some highlights from last year to get a sense of what will be going on. And you can also ask us any questions that you might have about the event and of course we'd love to have you in the mastermind group as well joining with us there and asking questions there today you're in for a real treat years ago i was handed a book well i bought it it was recommended to me and it's called the price of freedom by calvin coolidge and calvin coolidge it's so interesting he's like one of those presidents that nobody knows 
much about. His nickname during his lifetime was Silent Cal because he just only spoke if he had important things to say. It was kind of like George Washington that way. And I absolutely adored this book. It's a collection of his speeches. I can, in the podcast notes on the website, put in some favorite addresses for you if you'd like that, to know which ones are my favorite. But he really uh, won my heart. I did a little bit of research about him and his life and knew that he was an incredible man. Well, recently, I came across his autobiography. I did not know he had written one. It's in the public domain. You can get your hands on it and read it for yourself. And he wrote it right after he finished uh, being president, right after he uh, stepped down and didn't run for a second term, or what I guess would have kind of been a third term, but we'll talk more about that in a minute. When you open up The Price of Freedom and you look at the first speech, which is called The Supports of Civilization. I'm going to read you this first couple sentences and just tell me if you don't already love him. The process of civilization consists of the discovery by men of the laws of the universe and of living in harmony with those laws. The most important of them to men are the laws of their own nature or of course, natural law and the law of human nature that we talk so much about uh, at the Mission Driven Mom. This is education. So this is his definition of education. This is education, the method whereby man is revealed to himself. You can see the treat that we're in for because the kind of man that he was, he definitely demonstrates without any question a truly mission-driven life, and he states it often all throughout his autobiography, exactly who he was, what he learned, where he went, why he went there, and what his intentions were. And he's just such a phenomenal man. I mean, we would all do well to pattern ourselves after him. So he was born in 1872 on the 4th of July, the only president to be born on the 4th of July. And there's a couple things two or three things that are so unique about him that I think are just, I don't know, kind of providential or really, really cool. He loved his country deeply. He expresses that often in his autobiography. But he was born on the 4th of July, which is super cool, in Plymouth Notch, Virginia. They lived in a five-room, story-and-a-half cottage, and his father ran the general store, which was attached to the cottage. His mother's parents lived in a house across the road and his father's parents, the Coolidge's, lived on an adjoining farm 65 rods distant. So he's just in this town where his ancestors have been for a hundred years and it's he's surrounded by his close family and nurtured by them. It's this really incredibly sweet, picturesque, idyllic childhood. His father was an incredibly hardworking man and a really good trader. He tells about how his father eventually moved across the road. He bought a house for $375 in 1880. So tells you something about house prices uh, in the last little over 100 years. And then there was a barn and he turned around and sold the barn for $100 and someone carted it off. So he bought this land and home for $275. 
so amazing. He was really great at his business and a very hard worker. He hated wasting things. He taught his son to be a hard worker and to never waste. He sometimes would leave his toys in the street or not take good care of his things. And he said, I have been taken out of bed to do penance for such derelictions. So he was taught to take care of everything that he had. He said there was not any physical requirement of country life which his father could not perform. And he had all kinds of cool skills and was able to do a lot of things with his hands. In fact, the first buggy he owned, he made. And he laid bricks and was a stonemason and all these cool skills that he passed on to Calvin. His mother was beautiful, but for some reason she was an invalid. I don't know if this, he doesn't elaborate much. I don't know if this was something that happened in childhood or in childbirth. But she was a beautiful woman with a very sweet nature who loved beautiful things and cared for her children the best she could. It was him and a younger sister are all the children she was able to have. And when she was 12 years old, when he was 12 years old, his mother knew that she was dying and she called her children to her bedside and gave them her parting blessing. He says, the greatest grief that can come to a boy came to me life was never the same again. And this is something as I go through his life history, you'll see death was very familiar to him. Many people close to him died by the time he was, you know, 50 years old. And it started when he was 12, he lost his mother. He really idolized his grandfather Coolidge. He'd not only raised his own family, but had brought in foster children and raised them as his own, in fact, giving them an inheritance as well. He felt, this grandfather felt, that the only respectable way to get a living was to, to till the soil. So he gave on his death Calvin um, a deed for life for, his 40, for 40 acres. And he was pretty sure that his grandfather did this so that he would become a farmer. It's funny because his grandpa wanted him to be a farmer. His father wanted him to be a lawyer. And he wanted to be a storekeeper like his dad. But he really looked up to these men in his life. In fact, he says that he would carry apples and popcorn balls to the town meetings to sell simply because his grandmother had told him that his father did that when he was little. And he said, I was exceedingly anxious to grow up to be like him, like his father. When his grandfather was, was ill and, and dying, he would ask Calvin to read to him from the book of John in the Bible. And when he took the oath of office as president in 1925, which is a cool story I'll tell you about in a minute, he had his hand on the Gospel of John in remembrance of his grandfather. So he has all these really sweet, rich connections with family. It was really nurtured in such an incredible way. He says that his neighbors were people of exemplary habits. They, their lives were above reproach. They didn't have mortgages on their farms. Um, if they had debts, they paid them back as quickly as they could. Credit was good, people saved. In the mornings, they got up early, worked hard throughout the day. He said they were people of faith and charity and good works. They cherished the teachings of the Bible and sought to live in accordance with his precepts. And the young people were modest and respectful. So such a sweet environment where he was taught correct principles and encouraged to be a young man of dignity and respectful and dutiful and hardworking. 
His grandmother was also played a huge role in his life, I think partly because his mother was an invalid, so he would spend large amounts of time with her. And she was a constant reader of the Bible, a devoted church member. She was given to prayer. And he says she had much to do with the shaping, the thought of my early years. He says everyone around her benefited by her kindness. Now, from an early time, his father was involved in public life. He nearly all his life was a constable or a deputy sheriff. He also at times was a justice of the peace. And um, Calvin was often accompanied his father and watched his father in these public positions. In fact, this is a funny little side note. He says, two days after I was two months old, my father was elected to the state legislature. By a curious coincidence, when my son was the same age, I was elected to the same office in Massachusetts. So that's kind of cool. He followed in his father's footsteps in that sense that he saw the importance of being involved in local government from a young age. And that was modeled for him. He came to see how important it was. And he always did that as just a public service. And then later on went into higher public offices. He says, in his youth, his father was always gay, engaged in the transactions of all kinds of town business, and people in the neighboring, in the neighborhood were constantly seeking his advice. He was seen as wise and fair and just. And because of all these experiences, watching his father and sometimes accompanying him, he said, I came to have a good working knowledge of the practical side of government. Now, this is an interesting little side note, and, and I want to mention it here because it has to do with when he was in public office, he said, as I went about with my father when he collected taxes, I knew that when taxes are laid, someone had to work to earn the money to pay them. I saw that a public debt was a burden on all the people in the community. And later on, at every level of government where he had responsibility, he paid off good portions of the public debt at that level of government, at the city level, at the state level, and at the federal level. Now, he did virtually every job imaginable on the farm, and he had this early understanding of democratic ideas. Self-education was, of course, important at that time in the country and in his home and, and with his family. He said they had some books, not a lot. Mother liked poetry and read novels. Grandfather more read books and papers so that he was a well-informed man. Grandmother Coolidge read aloud to him stories like The Rangers or The Tory's Daughter or The Green Mountain Boys, which were stories of the early settlers of Vermont during the Revolutionary period. He really came to love, he also, she also read to him Washington and his generals. So he came to really love Vermont um, and Virginia. And uh, he says that he read other biographies as well. There were numerous law books in his home. And so self-education was important. He went to school, he said his teachers were intelligent and had a good character and were interested in their work. And here's the really cool thing, he worked really hard in school. He clearly was um, intelligent by nature and a good student, but he applied himself. He worked very, very hard at his education. So that when he was 13, he had mastered all the subjects of the common grammar school and was accepted into Black River Academy at. Ludlow, a neighboring town. I don't know how big it was, maybe a city. He said that if he could order his life anew, he would not change the period from the time that he was born until he was 13. He absolutely loved it. He said, going away to school was my first great adventure in life. 
And I will never forget the impression it made on me. So interesting that at 13, he moved away from home and that was just done so commonly back then. He was expected to act like an adult and be an adult. He would come home on weekends and things like that, but he lived away from his family at 13. Early on, he was attracted by the courses in civil government. He said, this was my first introduction to the Constitution of the United States. Although I was but 13 years old, the subject interested me exceedingly and the study of it has never ceased. The more I study it, the more I have come to admire it, realizing that no other document devised by the hand of man ever brought so much progress and happiness to humanity. And that became one of the themes of his life is his deep admiration for our, our governmental forms and for the way that we conduct ourselves at a local and a national level and the profound impact that America has had on the world. And as he continued in his education, it was deep and profound. And it's amazing because he really understood what America meant to the world because he understood the history of the world so intimately. He studied Latin, he studied Greek. He said the rewards of Greek are the moving poetry of Homer and the marvelous orations of Demosthenes. In some subjects, I began with the class when it was started to review, and so did the work of a term in two weeks. I joined the French class in mid-year and made up the work by starting my study at about three o'clock in the morning. So he was so determined to get ahead and to work hard that he would sometimes join extra classes in the middle of the year and get up early at three in the morning to study extra. This is in his teenage years. I mean, his level of discipline is just amazing. So he said it was under the teachings of this of the teachers of this school of the academy says i first learned of the glory and grandeur of the ancient civilization that grew up around the mediterranean mesopotamia babylon xenophon troy rome and he fell in love with the orations of cicero and later translated some of them that reminds me of john adams john adams felt the same way about cicero and he says, I discovered that our ideas of democracy came from the Agora of Greece and our ideas of liberty came from the Forum of Rome. So he's just getting this incredible education, working so hard in all of his classes, doing really well. In his senior year, his younger sister, three years younger, passed away. She suddenly got sick and was gone within a week. He said 30 years later, one of the doctors that attended her as as medicine advanced, they looked back and they were able to determine that she probably died of appendicitis, which they didn't understand very well at the time. Totally manageable and curable today, of course, but back then, if that appendix, you know, erupted, then that was it. So she passed away. The memory of the charm of her presence and her dignified devotion to the right will always abide with me, he said. So from there, he was accepted to the university. And there was a time for much reading um, as he prepared himself. He gave much attention to the poems of Scott. And it was there that he began to be introduced more and more to the concept concepts of natural law and truth. This is something that he said of, his, of something he learned in his university years. Things are so ordered in this world that those who violate its law cannot escape the penalty Nature is inexorable. If men do not follow the truth, they cannot live. 
I absolutely loved that. At about this time that he was heading to the university, his father married again, a woman named Miss Carrie A. Brown. She said she was the finest woman of their neighborhood. She had a motherly devotion to him. She wrote him letters. She watched over him, taught him, and, and loved him as a son for the rest of, of his life. He said that one of the requirements of going to Amherst, the university that he went to, was that the young men had to attend morning services and church on Sunday. A lot of them didn't want to do that. They thought church was boring and it wasn't for them and they wanted to have their freedom. And they tried to petition to say, oh no, we shouldn't have to do that. And the faculty just said, it's your choice to come here to school. You can go somewhere else if you don't want to come here, but if you come here, these are our rules. So that was a requirement of staying at the university. And he said, if attendance on these religious services ever harmed any of the men of my time, I've never been informed of it. The good it did, I believe, was infinite. Not the least of it was the discipline that resulted from having constantly to give some thought to things that young men would often prefer not to consider. If we did not have the privilege of doing what we wanted to do, we had the much greater benefit of doing what we ought to do. It broke down our selfishness, it conquered our resistance, it supplanted impulse, and finally it enthroned reason. And that is something that you find with Calvin Coolidge that I absolutely adore about him, is this constant harmonizing of the spiritual and the quote secular, that religion and faith can nurture our reason, that they can be shown as reasonable, and that they elevate our minds and enrich us. It's my personal mission statement, which I've mentioned a couple times on this podcast, that from Albert Schweitzer, where he says, I stand and work in the world to, uh, I aim at making men morally better and less shallow by making them think. So this connection between being morally better and a deeper, richer person comes from developing the reason and learning to think. And that's one of the things that he said really happened to him at the university, especially because of one specific uh, professor I'll tell you about in a minute. He said that the first couple years he was at Amherst didn't go super well and he tried really hard but he didn't feel like he was doing really well. He said he finally started to have a transition and it's interesting to me that the transition corresponds with his entry into these classes with Professor Garman who he talks so highly about and I'll kind of tell you a little bit about that class but this is what he said about his experience at the university and an important lesson that he learned. He said he had he started to have this transition and to come into his own and to discover more about himself, the self-discovery process that we talk about at the Mission Driven Mom. He said it was not accidental, but the result of hard work. If we're going to really know who we are and what we're good at and do something meaningful with it, we've got to be able to be willing to put the work in. He said, if I had permitted my failures, or what seemed to me at the time a lack of success to discourage me, I cannot see any way in which I would ever have made progress. If we keep our faith in ourselves, and what is even more important, keep our faith in regular and persistent application to hard work, we need not worry about the outcome. So in his junior year, he's heads into these courses with Professor Garman. It's a series of courses over two years. And it has this really transforming effect on him. He's already had a great education. He's already studied a lot of things, more than most of us have studied. 
He's already proven himself to be a man of strong moral character and hard work and diligence. But he goes into these courses with Professor Garman. He said he was one of the most remarkable men whom I ever came in contact. And for someone who was president of the United States, that's really saying something because he met some of the most important people from all over the world. He used numerous textbook and some pamphlets which he had written himself. So they had this four course series with this professor and they started with psychology to take advantage of their mental capacities. And then they started to learn what he says really about how to think. They were to an analyze, so they would be given readings. They were to give careful analysis, to analysis and to follow all the arguments. That's one thing we learned to do in level two of the academy is learn how to follow arguments using first principles, which is really a cool skill to have and is a, a mainstay of, of avoiding deception. But anyway, so they were, they would criticize, they, once they understood the author thoroughly, they would criticize and look for truths and principles, learning about the human mind, but learning how to use it, learning how to think. And so many of these great men and women that I've studied talk about how there's kind of a level of education where you're going along and you're thinking, you know, about what you're reading and you're filling in the, the blanks and doing your work. But when you really are pushed and have a great mentor or some of them talk about when it happened in law school or whatever the case might be, there's this moment when it shifts and they understand that now they're using their mind in new ways and they're learning how to think for themselves. And that's something really, really important that I talk about in the Mission Driven Life, this love of humanity, be, be gaining the ability to solve problems with principles is so important and that's what uh, Calvin Coolidge learned to do he was truly a man of principle and he talks about principles in several places in his autobiography and how they are the real solutions we've got to find the truth and live according to the truth in fact he said they would often be given a problem and asked to find the solution without the teacher's help above all we were taught to lead we were taught to follow the truth whithersoever it might lead. We were warned that this would oft times be very difficult and result in much opposition for there would be many who were not going that way but if we pressed on steadfastly it was sure to yield the peaceable fruits of the mind. It does. He said their investigations revealed that man is endowed with reason. He can weigh the evidence. He can know what's right and wrong and he can discover the truth. And then he gives us this important lesson, which I want to share with you because it's so important for us to keep in mind as we strive to be more adept at being truth seekers and living in a principled way. While the quantity of the truth we know may be small, it is the quality that is important. If we really know one truth, the quality of our knowledge could not be surpassed even by the infinite. So if we know one truth completely and thoroughly and we live in harmony with that one truth, no one could know it any better than we know it. And it's a stepping stone to more truth. Where we embrace truth, we're gifted with more. So we don't have to know everything. We don't have to be able, to, we don't have to know all the truth right now. We just have to embrace the truth that we do know. This is the last little segment on Professor Garman I want to share with you. It's really beautiful. We looked upon Garmin as a man who walked with God. His course was a demonstration of the existence of a personal God, 
of our power to know him, of the divine eminence, and of the complete dependence of all the universe on him as the creator and father in whom we live and move and have our being. No doubt there are those who think they can demonstrate that this teaching was not correct. With them I have no argument. I know that in experience it has worked. In time of crisis, my belief that people can know the truth, that when it is presented to them, they must accept it, has saved me from many of the counsels of expediency. The spiritual nature of man has a power of its own that is manifest in every great emergency. And he does in his autobiography speak of instances where he called upon the people that he was leading to see the truth and he helped delineate the truth for them and they would concede that indeed that was the truth and they needed to align themselves with it so truly a man who loved truth and who came to really love humanity to understand principles in depth to know how to discover them and a complete commitment to living them he says a great deal of emphasis was placed on the necessity and dignity of work in this class with with Professor Garman. And here is the clincher, this true love of humanity, which is the fourth foundational law of life mission. Our talents are given us in order that we may serve ourselves and our fellow men. All kinds of work from the most menial service to the most exalted station are alike honorable. He says, this professor never asked them to take his theory on faith, but supported every possible, every position by facts and logic. He believed in the Bible and used it to illustrate his position. He divested religion and science of any conflict with each other and showed that each rested on the common basis of our ability to know the truth. That reminds me of Father Tenboom, and I talk about this in the Mission Driven Life book about how he helped his family to see that there isn't a conflict between science and religion, that they are both facets of knowing different kinds of truth and that we can believe in both harmoniously. So it's time for him to go to law school. He's decided that this is the right path for him. He loves the law. He feels that um, it will be a good place for him. In fact, he says he went into the law because he loved it. And that's how we should always choose a profession. We should choose something that we love, which will enable us to make the sacrifices that doing a great job at that profession requires. And the same is said of mission work. As we discover who we are and what our gifts are, we should choose to do things in partnership with God that we will love so that we can make the, the, the sacrifices required. He said, I went where I felt the duties would be congenial and the opportunities for service large. Those who follow other vocations ought to feel the same about them, and I hope that they do. So he felt that he could follow the admonitions of his father and of this professor and of God. He felt drawn to the law. It had continually come up in his studies, and he felt that it was the right path for him, and he could be of great service to humanity if he was good at the law. So he went to work at a firm and he worked during the day and studied law at night and he did that for two years. He said he could have gone to law school and an opportunity did open up but he'd already made the commitment to these um, people and so he went that way instead. And so 
he got textbooks, he studied the law, and within two years he was able to pass the bar, which was phenomenal. And then he went into practice and he said that being in practice was quite different than just working with other people. He said he was quite alone in the sense that he didn't really have acquaintances that had influence that could send him business. He had to make it on his own merits. In fact, the first year he spent $800 to furnish his office and only made $500 total. And so the first three years he didn't really make much money, but he was very frugal and careful. He was very honest. And none of his cases ever were really super huge, super important ones that were really profitable. But he always felt that he was doing a good service and he was able to provide for his family doing it. By 1898, he had become a member of the Republican City Committee. He did that for a year, but it required so much commitment he felt he couldn't continue to do it. He really needed to devote himself to his law firm. And so he did that and eventually was able to make a small savings. He said, I suppose I began to want a family of my own. I think he was about 30 when he met and married his wife. And she was this really sweet, incredible woman. Her name was Grace Goodhue. And he said they naturally came to care for each other. They became engaged and married in 1905. He said, I know this is going to kind of sound a little bit cheesy, basically, like what's in popular fiction, but he said, we thought we were made for each other for almost a quarter of a century. She is born with my infirmities, and I have rejoiced in her graces, which I think is such a sweet and humble way to talk about their marriage. So then, of course, their finances um, went up, their expenses went up, and he wasn't making any more money than he had. And I loved that he was so honest about this. He said, I know very well what it means to awake in the night and realize that the rent is coming due, wondering where the money is coming from with which to pay it. He said that because of the nature of how his cases were, he didn't always know what cases were coming up and where the money was always going to come from. He said, the only way I knew to handle this was to keep my expenses as low as possible and to save. And because he did that, he was able to stay out of debt. They had their first little boy named John and named him after his dad. And within a little, about that time that they had their first son, they moved into a nicer home. They loved the neighborhood, they loved the home. And he said later on, like when he was making more money, especially when he was governor and things like that, they could have had a bigger, nicer home. But he said, we specifically intentionally never moved out of that house. He says, we loved the neighbors and it was our home. But the biggest reason was he said, I could be independent and serve the public without ever thinking that I could not maintain my position if I lost my office. I have always made my practice law up to the time I became governor. And he could always make his own decisions in accordance with what he thought was the public good. We lived where we did that I might better serve the people. And that was his dominant thought. He wanted to be the best lawyer he could so that he could serve the people that he worked for and he wanted to serve in, in public office. And most of the service that he did in public office was not paid for or was so little that he had to do it on the side and continue to run his law practice. So he had this long string of public offices 
I'll kind of give you the rundown and we can put that in the podcast notes if you'd like. But his main thought, he said, was to improve his himself in his profession. He studied law and literature in his spare time. And he ran for the Massachusetts House of Representatives. He secured a large number of Democratic votes. And he said, by my studies and my course of life, I meant to be ready to take advantage of opportunities. And he says that often, that he felt that he was able to do what he did because he always tried to prepare himself and to stay ready for any opportunity that would come by living financial principles and relationship principles and and business principles in his personal life he kept his home in order so that as more and more responsibilities came to him he says later on that he was seen as a man who people could put their confidence in and so when opportunities came later on he was able to take advantage of them and he was able to serve in a greater and greater capacity because his house was in order because he had put it in order with principles and he talks often about you know, finding the principles of law or this or that. He says here, his professor had said that we should try to guide ourselves by general principles and not get lost in particulars. So if we can be guided by principles, we won't be tripped up by all the applications people tell us that we should have. We can just live our lives according to the principles that we know. So he makes it into office in the House of Representatives and then he decides to run for mayor it's an, and it's an intense campaign and he wins. In fact there was only one race he ever lost. They were they asked him to run for the school board and he wasn't really what he wanted to do but he said okay that they could put his name up and then he lost that campaign. All the other campaigns he ever was in he, he always won. And he does something here that he always did at every level of government. He reduced the taxes and he increased the salaries of the teachers and he paid off debts. So he did that as mayor. He ran again and made it into office again as mayor. I think they were just one year long, just a year long stint, something like that. And then he said, remaining in one office long did not appeal to me for I was not seeking a public career. My heart was in the law. So he thought that maybe he should run for the Massachusetts Senate. So he did that and he made it into the Senate and he was there for uh, a couple of years. And then the president of the Senate was stepping down. And so he thought it would be wonderful to become the president of the Senate because then he would have a little bit more access to things that he didn't have access to before he could appoint the committees, have more responsibility, have greater influence, and learn more about the law. He said, my progress had been slow and toilsome with little about it that was brilliant or spectacular. It was the result of per persistent and painstaking work which gave it a foundation that was solid. So in his own words, he just always worked really hard and he tried to continue to study and enrich himself so that he would be ready for any opportunity that came. Now there was this point at which um, the people in his state started to claim that somehow the government was responsible that everybody wasn't prosperous. And he wanted, he had just become the president of the Senate and he wanted to 
kind of recenter everyone and help them get back to the actual true principles and not be caught up in having this big brother mentality where the government should take care of them. So he gave this kind of short speech about what the real role of government was and how the people should really be behaving and just work hard and things would work out. And it was super popular. It was renamed Have Faith in Massachusetts and was printed and circulated and became made him more popular. Another goal he had is that he wanted to cut back the volume of legislation with, that was being written every year. And he was able to do that as the president of the Senate. The first year he was in office, it was 1,700 pages of legislation. The next year, 1,400, and the next year, 1,200. So he saw less legislation going through, which of course is better you know, if there's fewer, better laws, it's easier for us all to obey the laws. So then it came to his attention that people were wanting him for lieutenant governor. And it's funny because he was like, I didn't necessarily want to be lieutenant governor, but it's a good way to get to the seat of governor. And I did want to be governor. And no one would be lieutenant governor if they didn't want to be the governor. <laughs> so... um. He says this about his campaign, which I love too. My campaign was carried on in careful compliance with the law. I was thus under no special obligation to anyone for raising money for me. And this was a constant goal of his, is that he would not have anybody he felt indebted to, that he had to do anything special for, no special favors, because he was taking care of his own financial needs, not taking gifts and staying within the limits of the law. He expected to continue to practice law when he was lieutenant governor, but he he couldn't, so he had to hand his law practice over to someone else, and he did a good job of it. And then when it came time, his name was put forward. In fact, this is one of the things that he says often, too, that he didn't like the idea of organizing people to try to get him on the ballot, that he waited for people to nominate him, to have confidence in him, to think of him for a position. If they asked him if he wanted to do it, he would be honest and say yes, but he would let other delegates bring his name forward. And I think it's one of the biggest reasons why he always won an election because he knew he had the confidence of important people before he ever started out because they said that they wanted him. So he did, won, he did win as governor. There was no executive mansion and there were no social duties. It was really kind of a little bit of a thankless job. Like he didn't get paraded around. You know, he had to solve problems, but it also meant he had to live away from his family during the legislative months. And so it was actually quite a big sacrifice. I mean, it provided enough for his family so he didn't need to practice law, but it was such a, you know, it he was just serving. It, it, it was a really a place of service. So during this time, the policeman, there's this policeman's union dispute, and I won't get into the details of it, but basically, he handled it really, really well and really, really fairly. And when they were kind of trying to do illegal stuff, he called them on the carpet and they were arrested or whatever. And this specific situation got him some national press. The people of the country loved how he handled it. And it was, it was something that got him national attention. And so right after that, he's elected governor again for a second term. And his name starts putting, being put forward by different delegates for the office of president. 
And he doesn't really take it very seriously at first, but then he starts to realize that people are really going to put his name out there. And he thinks about it and he realizes this is the wrong thing for, for me to be doing. I should not allow these people to put my name forward. I should not run for president right now. And he gives four reasons in his autobiography why he wasn't going to run for president. And I just think these are awesome, awesome reasons. He says, first, I was the governor of Massachusetts and my first duty was to that office. I needed to stick where I was and do it well. Second, it was not possible for him to travel around during the legislative session and actively participating in an effort to secure delegates. He said the third was, I was totally unwilling to have a large sum of money raised and spent in my behalf. And fourthly, I did not wish to use the office of governor to attempt to prosecute a campaign for nomination to some other office. And I just think of what goes on today, a hundred years later, and how sometimes offices are just to try to secure the higher office and, and people take off all the time while they're supposed to be doing other duties in order to campaign. It's so ridiculous. And it's so honorable of him. People are putting his name forward as president. And I'm sure it was such a huge stroke to his ego. But he just said, no, I'm going to do my duty. I'm going to stick here as governor and do a good job. And I'll worry about that stuff later. This is what I've committed myself to do. So then something really fascinating happens. And it's just, you can see the hand of God in the whole thing. It's so providential. He's just working in his life. Like it's like God wanted Calvin Coolidge president. I think there's a few instances of this. We see the same situation with George Washington. He just had to be president. And it's kind of like that with Calvin Coolidge. It's so fascinating. It's so different. So South Dakota decides, the South Dakota delegates decide to put his name forward as vice president. Then Oregon follows and does the same thing. And he doesn't want to be vice president. So he tells him, no, 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 no. I don't even want to be do that. I don't even want to do that. So then they start writing his name onto the ballot. So <laughs> he's not sure what to do. Three times this comes up that they want him for vice president. So the third time at the convention, the delegates broke away and literally stampeded me, he says, to present his name as vice president. Judge Wallace McCaminant of Oregon placed me in nomination as was quickly seconded by North Dakota and some other states, and then three quarters of all the states voted for him as vice president. So he never even tried to be vice president. They just wanted him. So he was, he, he says, when it, when it finally all happened, I just accepted the honor. Clearly it was important to them that he do this. And so he said, okay, I'll do it. And President Harding, it was Warren Harding, and he really liked Senator Harding. And so he was, he was willing to take the nomination and become vice president. It's really fascinating too, because when he got to Washington, there was like no provision for a vice president. The salary was low and there was no home for them. <laughs> so they have to go out and try to find some place to live. And he has to still pay for his boys to go to school. And so they he didn't even make very much money. Like he lived pretty frugally. He said he enjoyed the social dinners, but he loved, this is what he loved about it. He said, I'm not an intuitive guy and I learn best 
through experience and study. And this two years as vice president was perfect preparation for me. I sat in the Senate. I came to know the important people. I understood everything that was going on. I sat in the cabinet meetings and I was just very well acquainted, but I wasn't in charge. And so I had two years kind of to learn how to be president without having to be president. And it was really, really good preparation for him. And so then Warren Harding becomes really sick. They don't know exactly why he died, what he died of. Um, Coolidge says that he did, he was betrayed by some people close to him. And that really kind of broke his heart and they wondered if that impaired his health. But by August of 1923, two years into their presidency, he passed away. Now here's a really, really cool thing. He's visiting his father when Harding passes away. And he hears his father coming upstairs and his voice is trembling. And he says the only time he's ever heard his father's voice that way is when someone has passed away. So he knows something is really wrong. And his father walks into his room and hands him an official report, tells him that the president has passed away. And his father is the very first one to address him as the president of the United States and call him Mr. President, which is really, really sweet. But then what happens is even more awesome. He said that he and his wife got up at once and dressed. And then he says, before leaving the room, I knelt down and with the same prayer with which I have since approached the altar of the church, asked God to bless the American people and give me power to serve them. So incredible. And then he goes into the front room of his house, into the sitting room where the Bible of his beloved mother lay. And he, he and his father and his wife and a senator and a stenographer are there. And his father administers the qualifying oath of office, which made him the president of the United States in his father's home. He says, I can't think of any historical precedence for this. It seems like it's the only time it's ever happened. And so just really beautiful how that happened and he became the president and then he talks about going to washington and how the press received him well and treated him well he says one of my most pleasant memories will be the friendly relations which i have always had with the representatives of the press in washington and i just have to say as we finish up and i know this has been kind of long so i'm sorry i don't feel like i can break these mission-driven stories up into two podcasts and make you wait but it's so worth it to hear about such an incredible man. He says over and over and over again, the people in my town were wonderful and my teachers were wonderful and the people in college were wonderful and the people in the Senate were wonderful and the people in, you know, that I worked with as mayor were wonderful. I really, by the time I was done with his autobiography, I really have to believe that he was a really gifted man with relationships and that he understood how to treat people well, and they treated him well in return. He showed them respect. He thought the best of them. He was kind and genuine. He fulfilled his duty toward them, and he just had the respect and admiration of virtually everyone that ever knew him. And he always had really great, valuable, enriching relationships 
So a couple more things as we finish up here. Two really sad events happened while he um, was president in the second session. So he served for two years and then he ran again. He ran for the first time, really. He said he would accept the nomination of president for the Republican Party and he won. And right about that time, his 16-year-old son, Calvin, passed away. He had blood poisoning from a blister he contracted, and it was really devastating. He said that with his son's death went the power and glory of the presidency. And so it just was never as meaningful to him. And you can tell that he wondered if he should have kind of done something different. You know, we all doubt ourselves. And he has this sentence where he's kind of doubting himself. He says, if I had not been president, he would not have raised a blister on his toe, which resulted in blood poisoning. So of course he couldn't change it. And of course it, it was just his son's time to go. His son was a very, very good young man. But he says, I don't know why such a price was exacted for occupying the White House, which is really heartbreaking. Two years later, his father died while he was president. So his son and his father died while he was president. And it was a very sore trial for him not to be able to be with his father. His father wouldn't come to the White House. He wanted to stay at home. And when the doctors finally said they were losing him, he traveled home, but he didn't make it in time and he didn't see his father again. He didn't get to say goodbye to him. So that was very heartbreaking for him. But then at the end of his autobiography, if you ever want to go read it, he talks about the duties of the, of the president and what he thinks his proper role is. It's very constitutional, really, really awesome stuff. And I just want to end with a couple really interesting things. He talks about his daily routine as president. He got up at 6.30. He chose to shave himself instead of having someone else shave him and then went for a short walk before breakfast. Then he and his wife ate breakfast together. And then at 8 o'clock, he was dictating in the White House library for an hour, hour and then he received callers until noon. And, and then at 12.30, the doors were opened. This is so fascinating to me. I'm sure we don't do this anymore probably couldn't be done but they did this back then so fascinating the doors were open and a long line passed by who wished merely to shake hands with the president on one occasion I shook hands with 1900 in 34 minutes I had to go back and read that three times because it was hard for me to believe that that number was written down correctly <laughs> but he shook hands with 1900 people in 34 minutes he said instead of a burden it was a pleasure and a relief to meet people in that way and listen to their greeting, which was often a benediction. So he felt blessed by the many people who would come and say, bless you, President, and thank you, President, for all that you're doing. And it, it buoyed him up and, and blessed his day. Then he had lunch. Then he went back to work. Then he went for a walk before dinner and did some exercise on his vibrating machines. And then at 7, he had dinner and uh, for 45 minutes. And then he went back to work till 10 or later. So really, really a devoted man, a devoted president, totally committed to serving, serving in the law, serving in local government and in federal government and gave everything to the service of his country. It was a hard road. It required hard work and sacrifice, but he says that he always tried to prepare so that he would be ready. And in every instance, he was ready. He didn't ask for many of the offices that came to him. They just came to him. 
because it would just seem to be God's plan. That when he was willing, when he said, here I am, and he prepared himself and he lived those seven laws of life mission, those callings came. And he did incredible things at every level of government and in his law practice served many. I want to end with what he kind of ends with in his autobiography about being the president. Any man who has been placed in the White House cannot feel that it is a result of his own exertions or his own merit. As he contemplates the workings of his office, he comes to realize with an increasing sense of humility that he is but an instrument in the hands of God. Thank you so much for joining me today. If you haven't joined the Mission Driven Mom Mastermind Facebook group, we'd love to meet you there. We do morning inspirations. Uh, lighting our lamps to prepare ourselves to be the sunshine makers in our home. We discuss the podcasts, answer your questions and post questions to elicit discussion and help you learn and live the seven laws of life mission. Thanks for joining me today and I'll see you next time.